start your own industry. And I deliberately articulate like that because what I mean by that is start your own business. But when you start your own business, you can make it work exactly the way you want it to. You can work the way you want to. And when you do that, you are starting your own industry because you are starting the industry that we all want to live and work in. A bad bitch takes charge of her body, her boundaries, and her bank account. Welcome back, everyone, to the Bad Bitch Empire. And today I'm here with the one and only Cindy Gallup, the founder and CEO of Make Love, Not Porn. She has been leading the way for us, challenging centuries-old stigmas around women's voices, our right to sexual pleasure, and showcasing just how empowering it can be to stand in your own voice and unapologetically call out bullshit when you see it, Cindy, welcome to the Bad Bitch Empire. Thank you, Lisa. Thrilled to be here. So to start off, I always like to go back to the beginning. And for so many bad bitches, we didn't, we weren't just born this way. We had to defy the odds, go through a lot of challenges, break through good girl brainwashing. So tell us about how you grew up and what are some of the challenges or limiting beliefs that you were raised with um, and how you broke free of those? Sure. So I'm um, half English, half Chinese. Uh, my father was English, my mother's Chinese. And I grew up in Brunei, in Borneo, um, in Asia, where my parents moved when I was six, after I was born in the UK. And, you know, th 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 there are a number of kind of influences um, in my childhood and and my youth. So first of all, you know, talking about just the general sociocultural context for all of us as women, from the moment we're born, everything around us conspires to make us feel insecure about absolutely everything to do with ourselves. The way we look, the way we talk, the way we dress, nice girls do this, nice girls don't do that. We spend the rest of our lives coming back from that. And honestly, a lot of women never, never do. I mean, you know, um, they, they live with those influences um, all of their lives. And, um, and so in the first instance, I, I would say that, you know, I was surrounded by that, you know, as much as any of the rest of us are. I also, in my youth, encountered racism, especially growing up half English, half Chinese in Asia, where, you know, to the um, to, to, to the white people, I wasn't white, and to the Chinese, I wasn't Chinese. And so that there's, you know, as a mixed race person, um, you know, that that brings a particular um, set of issues. And um, and also, uh, my parents never ever ever talked to me about sex. You know, the, the extent of my mother's advice on that was to me and my sisters, girls, you stay virgin till you marry. That was it. <laughs> Um, and, and so all of that absolutely ha had an impact. I mean, I absolutely internalized, you know, repression around sex. Um, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about the work that I do with Make Love Not Porn now. And again, I mean, this is universally culturally, but also especially um, when you are Asian, you know, um, getting married and having kids was absolutely the goal, you know, ultimately. I mean, I was lucky because you know, um, both of my parents worked, they were both teachers, you know, um, and my mother actually in Brunei, um, 
she um, started a kindergarten, um, essentially because we, we moved to a town called Tutong um, for my father's job. He was the headmaster of a school. And, and, and there wasn't anywhere to educate um, my youngest sister, Melanie. So my mother started a kindergarten um, for Melanie and other children so, so that she could, you know, teach. And that became so successful that um, it just grew and grew and became a private school. And my mother was, you know, phenomenal at running it. And, and, and by the way, you know, I, I very much wish um, that my mother could have taken a different course because she was of the generation where, you know, um, women did not go to university. She was one of 10 brothers and sisters. You know, um, the sons all got to go to university. None of the sisters did. And had my mother gone to university and gotten a degree and gone into business, she would be a global tycoon by now. I mean, that's how brilliant she is um, at business. Um, and so, you know, to, um, honestly, it, um, it took me quite a while to kind of graduate out of all of that, um, which is why I feel so strongly now about, you know, shortcutting that process um, for all other women. So how did you graduate out of that? Was there a particular awakening moment? Um, to, uh, um, no, there, there wasn't because, um, you, you know, to, um, people ask me how I got to be what I am today and I go 61 years of life, you know, to, uh, and literally that's what it took, just growing up, you know, working, experiencing things. I mean, I am so enormously grateful that every boyfriend I had at Oxford, which is where I went to university, um, they all dumped me. Thank God, because I, you know, back in my teens, you know, I totally bought into, again, that sociocultural pressure that says, you know, falling in love is wonderful. You know, you fall in love with somebody. And then, of course, what you want to do is be in a commercial relation with them and marry them. Had any of my boyfriends at Oxford asked me to marry them, I would have done so and I would have willingly and voluntarily ruined my life. You know, I always say that somewhere in a parallel universe are divorce papers with my name on them. As it is... You know, I, um, you know, over the years realized that I never, ever, ever want to be married. I realized that I never wanted children. You know, so glad that I, I, you know, realized that very early on, as opposed to finding out the hard way by having them. And, you know, um, I realized that I'm not a relationship person. You know, I adore being single. I cannot wait to die alone. I love being on my own. And I have absolutely no desire whatsoever to be in love. And, and by the way, Lisa, I'm, I'm very public about all of this because we don't have enough role models in our society for women and also for men, by the way, that demonstrate you can live your life very differently to the way society expects you to and still be amazingly happy. And I'm one of the happiest people I know. <laughs> well, it's really ironic that you're saying that because I actually just put out an article that was called, uh, Why Are You Still Single? And it's my thoughts as a woman in my 30s where I've had also no external, no shortage of external pressure that's like settle down, find a husband. And I'm always asked, why are you still single? And it's like the most bizarre thing that I'm not spending my days chasing a relationship, chasing a marriage. And having been around so many men in their late 30s and 40s who are my good friends, entrepreneurs who have spent their whole 30s where they're having a blast and they have money and the world is their oyster and didn't feel any of that same pressure. And I was like, a few years ago, I also let go of that 
shame inducing narrative that said like, you're not complete as a woman without a man. And I worked on that self-love where I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm not missing a half. Like I am a whole. And so even right now I'm struggling with that because I'm like, I'm very happy single. I love my mission. I like see the impact that I want to make in the world, the empire that I want to build. Every time I've been in a relationship, I've been less happy than when I'm single. And there's no void here. It's only when like I, I feel some sort of pressure, then like there's a void that appears that wasn't there in the first place. And, and it's I say like male privilege is being able to make these independent decisions from a young age and not be labeled as selfish or rebellious. And so it's exactly to your point of being a role model where you are very confidently like transcending these labels and saying, I'm not being rebellious by doing this. I'm just being me. And I'm actually just listening to what it is that I feel. And it's not right or it's not wrong. It's just what's for me. Exactly, Lisa. And do you know, by the way, the New York Times published an article yesterday that said that um, the happiest people in this life are women who are not married and have no children. <laughs> and I, I shared a social media going, me! <laughs> um, but, you know, the, um, the interesting thing is people do not do this. They do not look at themselves and ask themselves, what would really make me happy? Strip out all of the family pressure, strip out the societal pressure, strip out your friends and what they think, and just ask yourself, what would really make me happy? Because there are many people out there living life in oiled grooves. You know, they've never questioned um, the, you know, to, um, the societal myth that what you need, especially as a woman, is you need to get married, you need to have children. And, and they literally sleepwalk into marriages they shouldn't be in, relationships they shouldn't be in. They have children they shouldn't have had. You know, to, um, you know the, the, uh, there was a study released um, a, a little, um, I think a few months back this year, um, where, you know, a very high percentage of parents, women and men alike, say that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, they wish they had not had children. And obviously, this is, especially again for women, such anathema to, you know, again, the societal construct that, you know, um, women, women are really frightened about ever saying that publicly. But, um, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, um, if we were able to be much more open and honest um, about the fact that there is not one way to live your life, and that you can make the choice and it, and it really will benefit you to think long and hard about what will really make you happy. I think we, we'd see many people living much happier lives. Exactly. And do you ever get those these questions? Because I've when I put out that article, I got there was there were a number of women who were like, I needed to hear this. Thank you. But then there were also people who were like, there was there's one woman who sent me pictures of her children. She was like, you know, I also came from a similar Asian background as you and my children are my joy in life. So you would be so much more powerful if you harnessed the thing that nature gave you, just the power to have children like you don't really understand. And someone else is like, you know, while I appreciate what you say, you can have both. It's almost it was almost like this. Oh, you don't really understand. You're not really happy. You're just being defensive. And and it's how, yeah, how do you deal with them? <laughs> well, 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 first of all, Lisa, it's extraordinary how many people want you to be just as unhappy as they are. Okay? <laughs> so that so that is absolutely the kind of response um, you will get. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I still, when I say never want to be married, never want children, I still get, 
you know, um, one of two responses. You know, there are the people who clearly look at me with pity and think, oh, you know, the poor dear thing never had anybody who wanted to marry her. And by the way, that is not true. I absolutely had men who wanted to marry me that I did not want to marry. And the other, you know, the other reaction is, oh my God, you know, how, how unmaternal, not to, how unnatural, a woman who doesn't want children, that's a freak of nature, you know. And, and, and this is precisely why we need more and more of us saying this loud and proud. And also why um, everybody should ignore everybody else's advice on how to live their life and just, again, focus in on what, what you know will make you happy. You know, and, 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 and as part of that, you know, um, none of us is, you know, critiquing women who, who chose to have children and who say there are a joy. Um, and by the way, that's the story you have to tell yourself when you have them, because obviously you can't even contemplate the alternative. You know, um, as I said, uh, that, that's why women don't, don't speak up about what it feels like to, when they have children and they really are not happy and wish they hadn't had them. But every one of us um, should be free to design, you know, the model for our lives that we wish to live. And, and as I say, th that also goes for men as well, who equally are, um, you know, told certain things about the way that they ought to operate. Um, it's not the same pressure as we get. But, but again, you know, men could benefit with different role models to believing that you have to have a wife and children to be a decent, you know, member of society. Yeah, yeah. So when you think about designing your life, are there specific call it avenues when you think about personal, professional and, or like, how do you, how does someone really get to the place where they're like, this is actually what makes me happy. And it's not the residual voices of someone else because they're so used to hearing the voices of other people in their head. So, you know, first of all, you know, you just need to not give a damn what anybody thinks. Okay. And that is the only way to live your life and do your work, not giving a damn what anybody else thinks. And then what I always say is, stay away from people and places and things that make you feel bad about yourself. Okay, so, um, and in the context in which um, we're talking, honestly, um, if you are invited to an event where you know there are gonna be nothing but couples, don't go. You know, because because you will absolutely be looked at as, as if you're unnatural, you'll be pitted, you know, and so just don't go there. Stay away from people and places and things that make you feel bad about yourself. So what is it that, you out so you got in your mind you were like okay I don't want kids I want to be single what about your work side your professional side how did you design that for yourself well um, honestly I mean the answer is I didn't because everything in my life and career has always happened by accident and so you know I I, I went where life took me basically um and, and and I think that's that's a very good philosophy as well and my um old boss in my advertising days, um, John Hegarty, who's the creative partner at the ad agency I worked for for 16 years, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, BBH. He has this great mantra that goes, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. And I'm a great believer in that as well. So absolutely do interesting things, go where life takes you and interesting things will happen to you as a result. And is that, did you have to release control to really let that happen? Because I think, you know, there, there's kind of this dichotomy of like, you know, really define for yourself your dream, know what you're going after, know what your purpose is, and then just like allow. Well, you know, I don't think you need to have a really clear picture of exactly what you want to do to be able to do it. And, um, and what I mean by that is, so, you know, I worked in advertising for many years, as I've said, you know, to, um, for a very long time at one agency. And 
Um, the way I broke out of that was also accidental because uh, back in 2005, I turned 45 and I had my very own personal midlife crisis in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. Obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. Um, but in the couple of years running up to it, I thought on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Now, wonderful agency, BBH, love them to death. I cannot say enough nice things about them. Um, but when, whoa, you know, it's been 16 years, I think it might be time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. I'd always said to people, you know, I'm not gonna work in advertising forever, um, not gonna work at BBH forever, but advertising is a really good industry to help you find out what you want to do next. Because when you work in advertising, you come into contact with so many different clients, companies, different sectors. And so I guess I'd always thought that, you know, my next big thing would bubble up from the ether. And there I was at the age of 45 and it happened. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me, if what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am, what do you got? And see what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And it was the best bloody thing I ever did in my life. Because I am now evangelical about working for yourself. Too many people think that a job is the safe option. It's not. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of the large corporate entity, who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. And how has that journey been for you so far? Um, fantastic. I mean, obviously, um, you know, it has its ups and downs uh, because, you know, that led me to um, building Make Love Not Porn and building and growing a sex tech startup is unbelievably challenging because I face a whole set of obstacles that entrepreneurs in more conventional sectors don't. Um, but honestly, um, the freedom to set your own schedule, you know, um, work the way you want to, be completely in charge of your own destiny, is amazing absolutely amazing and you know i just i recommend that to everybody especially now when there are so many ways to work you know as a freelancer as a contractor for yourself whether or not you decide to start a business that just you know give you the ability to be far happier about how you control your working life what would you say to people who say like, well, you know, maybe I'm not cut out to be an entrepreneur or I don't know if I'm okay with the financial insecurity because sometimes people don't know what to do with freedom. And I think especially when we talk about society and the way good girl brainwashing has shaped us, it hasn't made a lot of us comfortable with making independent decisions without seeking permission first. So 
Um, I think it's absolutely fine. I mean, um, you know, I'm not saying everybody, as I said, I'm not saying start, start your own business. I'm saying that you could be a lot happier working for yourself as a consultant, as a freelancer or contractor in your business. You know, um, I'm on the board of a wonderful um, company called We Are Rosie, which was started by the brilliant Stephanie Olson because she got completely fed up with all of the sexism that she faced in marketing. And so she started um, a company that is the talent marketplace of the future for, you know, people like her who want to be free agents and decide how they get to live their lives and how they get to work their work. And so We Are Rosie um, is a marketplace for free agents that matches those people, that talent, with the clients and the brands and the companies um, who need um, a talent um, in all sorts of contexts. I mean, she works with advertising agencies who, you know, have to pitch for business and everyone in the agency is up to their eyeballs. And so, and so what We Are Rosie does is they put teams together as well very quickly, they can, they can compile entire teams, entire workforces. I mean, they work with Google and Microsoft and, you know, um, but, but, but essentially it's for people who, you know, do not want to be locked into one company and one culture and want to be able to have freedom of choice in how they earn their paycheck and, and their daily bread. And I just think that's fantastic, you know? And that's been my experience too, because I have built my own company. I tried to go full-time into another company and I've just realized that I'm not employable because I value my own independence, my own brand, my own voice too much to have to suppress it and play the politics that are required to, to climb up this little ladder. And I, and what we see so often, especially in the corporate world is that as women, we do have to tone ourselves down. We have to always walk this like very, thin tightrope between not being too much, then we're not enough, and we can't be too aggressive, we can't be too outspoken, and um, it just gets really tiring. And yeah. No, absolutely. And it's not just tiring, Lisa. All of the daily microaggressions that women encounter um, in the workplace, especially Black women and women of colour, you know, they're not just tiring, they are soul-destroying, and I mean that quite literally. You know, my English grandmother was a wonderful woman, huge influence on my life, and she was very interested in other religions, and she was especially fascinated by Buddhism. And I always remember this Buddhist saying that she would, you know, quote, um, you know, when I was a kid. She said, um, it, it goes, the fool says evil cannot harm me, but drop by drop the pitcher fills. And that is true of microaggressions in the workplace. You may think I can take this for the paycheck, but drop by drop, mm. those microaggressions are eroding your self-worth, your self-esteem, your belief in yourself. Do not let that happen. Get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. So you think there's not even any room to just to even call it out or, or try to change it? Um, to be frank, in most companies, no. Mm. No, and, and you know, this is why I mean, for years, you know, I've been trying to change my own industry advertising. And I started off believing I could change advertising from inside the system. Mm -hmm. And I've realized I can't. And by the way, all credit to the people who continue to try. But now I'm all about designing our own system. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and th that is why I say to women, 
start your own industry. And I deliberately articulate like that because what I mean by that is start your own business. But when you start your own business, you can make it work exactly the way you want it to. You can work the way you want to. And when you do that, you are starting your own industry because you are starting the industry that we all want to live and work in. Yeah, that's that's so mirrors my own experience too. Um, I think because in, in a lot of ways, when I went into a company, I saw all the ways things were not working. And I saw that women, a lot of the women were putting their heads down and working really hard and doing all the right things, but no woman was getting budget. <laughs> and I was like, why is it that they get, they get nice taps on their head and then they don't get invited to certain offsites, but it's just no woman has budget. She doesn't actually have control. She doesn't actually have power. And I think that's a subtle way because especially now you can't be blatantly sexist or racist in the workplace anymore because of you know HR and everything that people are going to call out. But these little ways in which we still minimize women in corporate environments is, is to your point, soul sucking and you don't even realize it. And, um, and by the way, Lisa, it's astonishing to me how much it doesn't matter that people, especially men, are told what is reportable to HR and still carry right on doing it. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, when I started thinking about like this new system, because one thing that I've been more and more involved in is in the crypto scene. And, you know, the whole point of decentralization is around decentralizing, taking away the middleman and the big banks and the big institutions. And so I, I I almost start thinking like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, as I'm sitting here in New York, looking at all these really tall buildings, which are physical manifestations of corporate money, right? It's like, what is what does that world look like when women are building our own systems and our own industries? Well, um, I mean, first of all, Lisa, unfortunately, Crypto is as sexist and racist as any other area of tech, as you know. So women are not getting a look in. I mean, I mean, I mean, um, you know, um, some women are absolutely determinedly doing so, you know. Um, but the fact of the matter is that that is an area where women are not the people getting funded, they're not the people getting championed, and they are not the people making an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money out of crypto. Yeah, um, well, it's the same tech bros and the same finance bros who are getting in there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I very much want many more women to get into crypto. Absolutely. Not least because we have a completely different lens about how we use it and what we want to do with it. Um, and, you know, the answer to your question is, of course, you know, the world we build will be fantastic for everybody. You know, I say to men, men, we live in a world where the default setting is always male. Men, you have no idea how much happier you would be living in a world that was equally designed by all of us. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that systemic sexism, systemic racism, systemic ableism, systemic homophobia still keep women and diverse talent down. So how do we speak up about this in a way that is powerful, that each individual woman can do, that we can do collectively? Because we have seen the rise of movements where women have had voices. But to your point, it, these, systematic, these systemic issues run so deep. So what is what have you been doing? What's the best course of action for all of us? It's very, very simple. The best course of action is what I have been advocating for many years, 
which is I want every single woman to unashamedly set out to make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. And I deliberately articulate like that because that is how much money I want each of us to make because money talks. Money is power. We don't get taken seriously until we get taken seriously financially. You know, I, um, I spoke many years ago in Dublin, Ireland, um, at the inaugural um, uh, Inspirefest um, conference, which was started by um, the wonderful um, woman behind Silicon Republic, um, which is a media um, uh, platform in, in um, Ireland essentially as a counterpoint to the white male dominated web summit which was still taking place in dublin at the time it's now in lisbon um, and so inspirefest was phenomenally diverse lineup of speakers 70 percent of them were, were women and i was one of the final speakers and you know i walked out on stage at the end of two days of the conference and i said to everybody we've been talking for the past two days about all of the barriers that face us as female founders in tech and I'm here to tell you that you will not believe how fast those barriers fall, how they magically melt away the moment we prove we can make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. So that is what I single-mindedly ask every woman to unashamedly set out to do. Did you always have a good relationship with money? No, um, no, absolutely not. Because my parents were very poor, you know, when we were growing up. And my mother um, was and is extremely frugal, which, by the way, is a great quality. I'm afraid that, um, you know, I, I had a backlash against that when I began earning money. You know, because of the money had been very constrained in my childhood and youth, I, I just went, whoopee, I'm spending. You know, and, and so, you know, I, I wish I'd taken my mother's excellent advice on saving um, a great deal earlier. But, but actually, what I will say, um, because I, I think this is important, is... What I and my sisters are enormously grateful to our parents for, and again, especially my mother, because it's a very Chinese perspective. You know, my mother likes investments that she can touch. She's a big fan of bricks and mortar. And so what was, what was dinned into us, um, you know, very early on was the moment you can afford to buy an apartment, you know, get on the property ladder. And um, so, you know, when I was earning a salary in my early days in advertising that enabled me to get a mortgage, I bought my first apartment in London in 1987 for the princely sum of 41,500 pounds, okay, which is about $60,000 today. Um, and I bought it in this far-flung corner of Southeast London I'd never heard of called Peckham because it was the only place I could afford. But, you know, um, buying that apartment got me on the property ladder. And when I sold it, I was able to sell it for a profit and buy a bigger apartment in North London. And when I sold that, I made a very good profit on that. That enabled me to buy an apartment here in New York, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, and the same thing equally with my sisters, you know, all of whom bought, um, you know, tiny apartments in shitty places in London, but were able to trade up, you know, over time. Um, and so um, I actually do, I know it's so much more, more difficult now, but, but I basically say to women, if you possibly can, buy something, buy something small, buy something in a shitty area, because um, generally speaking, if you find the right kind of shitty area, you will absolutely make money. And, 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 that, and that is honestly one of the more accessible ways to wealth creation in the first instance. You know, um, and, um, and so the moment you can, you know, um, buy an apartment. Mm. That's really, really great advice just to 
think about early on um, because I think so many women who haven't grown up with wealth, um, I think especially if you come from an immigrant background and like similarly also instilled with this frugal mentality, you know, save, don't spend, like the, the thought of investing doesn't even cross your mind. And, and so a lot of times, you know, we're talking about like, find a way to invest your assets and make your money, make money, whether that's an apartment, whether that's in stocks, Ooh. or at least just putting it in some sort yeah. of ETF or, or, you know, robo advisor. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, as I said, you know, I, I bought my apartment in this shitty area of London. And a few years ago, the London Evening Standard issued a list of the trendiest areas in London and Peckham was number one. <laughs> Should have hung on to that apartment, by the way. You know, but, but um, you know, um, th that's why I say, you know, um, it, is, it is a really great way of, you know, investing in, in, in real estate. Not only gives you a home of your own, which is just a wonderful thing to have, but also, generally speaking, is a reasonably safe bet. Mm. To make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money, which is a good kind of mantra. But, you know, on the one hand, there's investing in real estate, right, in assets. How does a woman who's like, okay, I'm ready to make money. Okay, now what? <laughs> no. so, um, so I really recommend that you start your own business. And by the way, it's entirely possible to do this alongside a job as well. You know, everyone has side hustles these days. But um, um, what I recommend is take a long, hard look around you and identify what you think is missing that should be there. You know, whether this is in your industry where you work, or whether this is in your lifestyle, identify what you would love to have available that nobody else has brought to the table. You know, identify what you would love to be able to use yourself that, that nobody else has thought of and then start a business doing that. Because um, when you identify what is missing and you fill that gap, I guarantee you whatever sector it's in, um, you just have to make it work for a certain amount of time and then much bigger company X will buy it from you for a shit ton of money. Okay, mm -hmm. especially by the way, I say this to people in my industry advertising, you know, to, um, take a long hard look at the white male dominated advertising industry Identify what you think is missing that should be there, start that. And I guarantee giant holding company X one day will buy it from you for a shit ton of money. And, and I make that point, Lisa, because not enough women start businesses with the aim of ultimately being acquired in a way that makes them an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. And by the way, too many men do. Okay, Too many men start businesses with only that goal in mind, which is not what I'm advocating. But I am advocating that when you create something that is of value, because you saw an opportunity nobody else did, then you should know that there is a very clear path to making an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money, which is by having somebody buy it from you for that mm -hmm. amount of money. Yeah. So, so you're you're advocating that a woman that because there's this common narrative that's like start your own business, work really hard, get clients, make money, which is also really great. But we've seen so many entrepreneurs, and including myself, where it's like I got more burnt out. I, I created my own prison because I was constantly working more than I had worked ever when I was in a job and paying myself last and just not living the lifestyle that I wanted to live. You could actually start a company or you should start a company with a particular niche with the aim in mind early on who could be your potential acquirers mm -hmm. down the road. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's also another route. Um, so this is one that my best friend, Kate Brister, has taken because she um, and two other amazing women, uh, Rebecca, who's the managing director, Maria, who's the creative director, they, um, the three of them were running an, an ad agency in LA um, called MNC Saatchi. It was the LA branch of MNC Saatchi, which is a gl big global network. And MNC Saatchi decided to close that office um, because um, it, it wasn't working very well, unfortunately. And the, the pandemic kind of put the lid on, um, as it did for, for many agencies, unfortunately. And Kate and her two partners, um, the three of them, decided that they were going to start their own um, and I use the word agency loosely, but they decided they wanted to start their own business. And they sat down together and they basically decided how they wanted this business to work. Because, um, you know, they're all, they're all parents with children. They, they wanted quality of life as well as being able to make money to, to support themselves. Um, and, and so they, they basically designed the business where they went, we're only going to work with clients we want to work with. So we will decide, you know, who are our kind of clients. We do not want to work like, you know, massive long hours. So we're, we're going to design this so that, you know, um, we have a really good, you know, work-life balance. And they went, we don't want to grow this agency to be like a huge company. We don't want to have to hire more and more people. Um, we don't want, actually in their case, they went, we don't want to make a huge amount of money. We just want to make enough money that we can all support ourselves and our families and live comfortably. And so they launched My Brilliant Friend um, two years ago, and it's working brilliantly, as the name suggests. They are hugely enjoying the clients they work with. They are making more money than they thought they would. They've already exceeded their goal for this year, you know, um, and they have a fantastic quality of life because they, um, they work the way they want to. So that also is an option. You know, to, um, you can design, you know, a business that does exactly what you want it to do and, and you can be very happy. Mm. I mean, this goes right back to what we we're talking about, like designing what makes you happy, mm. transcending the labels of the way even people say that you should mm. start a business or you can start a business. Because I mm. think in this case, the, the friend you just told us about, they focused very specifically only on clients that brought them joy and their bigger exactly. ticket clients, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and by the way, you know, that is a very important principle in all of this. You know, anybody who follows me on social media knows that my, you know, LinkedIn bio line, my Twitter bio line is about my approach to consulting and speaking and doing business, which is I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. Now, that line is not a bit of whimsy or a bit of creativity or a bit of fun. I characterize what I do in that way entirely deliberately because when I phrase it like that, I attract to me the clients who want what I do. I repel the ones who don't. And I want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort, and money. So I say to everybody, be your own filter. You know, project what you stand for out into the world in whatever context. You will attract the people who want that. You'll repel the ones who don't. And you mm -hmm. want to repel the ones who don't. At what point do you become, I'm the Cindy Gallup of business, and not the Michael Bay of business? Oh, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just a lighthearted joke, you know, and, um, and people say, so, so Michael Bay is the Cindy Gallup of filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what is the brand then for you when you say people know what they're going to get? What is it that they get? So what they get is, you know, I'm very selective about 
who I choose to work with because I, I only want to work with clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. You come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And I know that can be uncomfortable for some people who very much want to stick with the status quo. And those are not the people I want to work with. So can you take us to a specific incident of, let's say, a brand or some sort of client who wanted to work with you? And how do you set up a meeting with the Hmm. expectations of what they can expect from you and what your values are? Hmm. What do you say? Hmm. I'm sure. So, you know, I'll give you I'll give you a recent example, actually, because um, uh, because this is a project I worked on earlier this year. So um, Restaurant Brands International basically approached me about working with them on a fantastic initiative for their brand Popeyes, um, the, um, the food chain, where, you know, they, um, they felt very strongly, um, A, that they needed to improve their diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, to, um, within the company and within all of their marketing practices. And they also wanted to build something for themselves that they could share as, you know, a template for the marketing industry to emulate best practices. Um, because, you know, um, DEI is badly needed in marketing as much as in every other industry. And so, you know, we had a number of conversations where, you know, um, first of all, I made it clear that I only wanted to work with a client in this instance who absolutely committed to wanting to make DI work um, and, and happen. Because, I mean, one of the points I make to clients is um, I can't afford to associate my personal brand with anything that does not have authenticity and integrity and will not be effective. You know? And, you know, to, um, I also wanted to know that my input would be taken on board. You know, that this wasn't a woke washing scenario. And I have to say, um, I was thrilled with how Popeyes worked with me. I was thrilled with um, what we created. And in fact, I'll just check the URL, but um, you can find it at diversity.popeyes.com because they, they really valued my input and they really took it on board when I said, this is not the best way to articulate this. This is not what you should be doing here. And they had, they had no, no issue with that. And, and they were very complimentary about working with me as well, which was terrific. That's amazing. Was there a time when you worked with a brand where it didn't work out or you realized that once you had started working with them that they weren't actually valuing your input? I haven't had that in the direct working process, but but I have had tremendous disappointment in that context for broader reasons. And so many years ago, I worked with a very large global company, and I'm I'm not going to name names in this instance where they basically hired me to consult on some of their portfolio brands because they wanted to market them much more innovatively and more disruptively. And so I was working on projects where the results would manifest a couple of years down the line. And I worked on several brands for this big company. And I have to say the people I worked with who were predominantly women, because this was a company that whose products predominantly target women. um, the, The people I worked with were brilliant and we developed strategies and programs I was very proud of. But then this is a very long-standing company that has very old world order systems and processes. And and this is something I've talked about for for many years because what I would say is 
you cannot do new world order business from an old world order place. What I mean by that is that if you plug really innovative ideas and disruptive thinking into old world order systems and processes, you get the same old world order crap out the other end. <laughs> and that is what happened because, you know, everything they brought me in to disrupt, you know, and as a consultant, you hand over your thinking and you move on at the end of the project. And years later, it came out the other end as the same old shit they've always done. And by the way, part of that is that this is a global company run by white men. And I'm, I remember being on a call in my apartment here in New York with the brilliant all-female team I was working with. And we were on a call with the white men at Global HQ, which was over in Europe. And literally, one of those white men said to us, and I quote verbatim, Lisa, no, 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 that's not what women want. Let me tell you what women want. Literally. Okay, so 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 that was just. I mean, the end result was very disappointing to me because I welcomed being invited in to really disrupt the way that brands are marketed in this huge global industry, and I wasn't able to achieve that because the company was structured such that no one ever would. Mm. And I think that's a really key thing to to note. It's I think especially now, if you are a smart, ambitious woman, you are going to get invitations. You are going to get propositions and opportunities. And so it's really up to us to see beyond the verbal sometimes. They'll say, oh, of course we want women. Of course we want this. Mm. And to actually read into the environment and the unsaid messages. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, continuing on this thread of money, um, I know that you also have a lot of experience. I mean, I would say early on with negotiations and even now, like as a consultant, you have to negotiate as when you're raising money, you have to negotiate. Um, what are some of the, um, tips that you have for learning how to command your worth? Well, first and foremost, and, you know, I've been giving this advice for years, the amount you ask was the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. And literally every week, a woman messages me and says, thank you so much, Cindy, I did that and it worked. And it does. So absolutely, always ask the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. And so if someone says an amount and then the counterparty is basically like, no. So, um, so, so I, I will direct our audience to um, an interview with me online at Bustle. Um, so if you Google Cindy Gallup, Bustle, how to get a pay raise no matter what, you will see an extremely useful interview because Rachel Krantz, the journalist who wrote it, who was one of Bustle's founding editors, we had a conversation where she literally said to me, but what if they say this? And I gave her the answer. But then what if they say this? And I gave um, her the answer. So um, the, the quickest way to answer your question is literally go online and find that interview because I counter everything that anybody could possibly say. And I tell you what to say in that instance. And the other thing um, uh, that, that, that can help you, um, although this, this unfortunately only works for um, US-based listeners, um, although if you are based elsewhere in the world, you can, you can enter a US zip code. Um, so if you go to Facebook, go to a page that is called Ask Cindy Gallup, and there you will find CindyBot. 
So CineBot was created by the digital ad agency RGA several years ago for Equal Pay Day. And it's a spectacular use of AI and bot technology because they researched the shit out of me and they built a bot that speaks to you exactly like I do. Um, so expect a ton of four-letter words, by the way. And, and, and they, they basically draw on data from pay scale and ladies get paid um, to organizations that, um, that are about pay data and helping women get paid. And so the way it works is, you know, um, you go to, go to the chat um, on, on this page at Facebook, Ask Cindy Gallup, and I say, right, we're going to get you paid what you deserve. So tell me what you do and, and you tell me what, what your role is. Tell me where you do it. Okay, this is where you enter um, a zip code, the zip code of your, of your area. Um, and I will say, right, okay, so the average salary for a whatever you are in, in this area is, but you're not average, are you? So we're going to get you a whole lot more. And then literally, you can ask me every question you want about what if they say this, and I will answer. And, and, and again, they've built this spot brilliantly. In fact, back when we launched it, David Marcus at the time was the head of, um, of Facebook's um, bot, uh, messenger and, and you know, bot technology, um, asked if I could speak on a, on a panel at, at Cannes Lions about it because he said it was one of the best uses of bot technology they'd seen in Facebook Messenger. Um, sadly, nobody pays me to go to Cannes, so I couldn't speak on that panel, but, um, but, but I was blown away by their use of AI and, and bot technology mm. in this instance because it is literally me talking to you. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think the the point you made about like you're not average, are you, is really important because I think as as women, we've been trained to be again humble and like downplay our wins and what I might naturally think I should get paid, I should probably actually double. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, 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 exactly. I was negotiating my salary at BBH London many years ago, and my boss said to me, "Well, Cindy, you know the." the average market rate for an account director is, and I said, I'm not an average market account director. Hmm. I'm far superior. <laughs> <laughs> well, any last pieces of advice that you want to give to women? Um, you know, to, I think just, you know, be aware the only person who can make things happen for you is you. And I say that because I think we all too often presume that things are out of our control and out of our power. You know, we give away too much of that to other people. And I promise you, whatever you want to do, you are the person who can make that happen. I totally agree. You are the heroine of your own story. You can write your own book. No one else can really define it. And I think too often we we get brainwashed into believing we're just supporting characters in other people's stories. And there's no reason for us not to be the, the leading role. The only person who can make things happen for you is you. Exactly. Last question for you, Cindy. What does it mean to you to be a bad bitch? You know, honestly, I just love your definition, Lisa. I think that's fantastic. A woman who is in control of her own body, her own boundaries and her, and her own bank account. I, I, I love that. I can't put it any better than you have already. <laughs> Amazing. How are you a bad bitch? I mean, it's obvious how you're a bad bitch, but in your own words, owning everything that you've done. I just don't give a damn what anybody thinks. Amazing. Amazing advice for all of us, for all the bad bitches. Cindy, I'm so grateful for you, all the work that you've done, the way you authentically show up and call out things the way they need to be in order to push us forward. And grateful for you in being part of the Bad Bitch Empire. It's an absolute pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much. 
If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, tag me at Lisa Carmen Wang, and make sure you check out thebadbitchempire.com for events, courses, crypto, and other cool shit. Thanks for tuning in to The Bad Bitch Empire. <laughs>